The author of the Sermon on the Mount concluded his message by comparing our lives to the building of a house. The question is, what kind of foundation have you chosen to build upon? Our study leader Dave Wurtson begins our study with some nostalgic reminders of Sunday school singing. Pay attention. You may encounter a lot of truth in the midst of the rains coming down and the floods coming up. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And we have a very familiar passage as we finish this Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it generated a children's song, which I'm sure that almost all of you have sung from time to time. In fact, you probably did all the motions and everything else. Remember the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the foolish man, not meaning that he was having mental problems or that he was deficient mentally or something like that. That's not what it means by a foolish man. But in the Bible, when you read about a foolish man, you're speaking about someone that chooses not to build their life on the skillful blueprint that God has given to us. And there's a lot of Proverbs in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's only fitting for the Lord Jesus as He concludes this powerful message to come back and use one of the proverbial favorite metaphors, the idea of building a house. Look what He says. Chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, every one of you who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, it's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down. The streams rose, kind of like living up a long mountain creek. The streams rose and the winds blew, kind of like living in Wichita Falls or Amarillo. The wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was built upon a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, and now we have the contrast, Notice everyone who hears these words. The foolish man hears the words of Jesus. They were some of those that were part of the very crowd that heard this message. But does not put them into practice. They are like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Jesus concludes his message with this powerful metaphor of contrasting the way that we build our lives with the way that we construct a home. You know, I had the privilege of helping Bill Brown and some others as we built our house. And when I came to Midlothian, I was raised by an evangelist that didn't have the foggiest idea what was inside the wall of a home. He had no idea what was behind the sheetrock. He had no idea about plumbing, electricity, or anything at all like that. Especially, he had no idea of, of what the house was built on. But when we were building our home, we had the whole Cox tribe back from the mission field and they came and they put themselves to work for a couple days and we shoveled sand and dug beams and tied steel and got everything ready for the concrete layers to be able to come in. You know, there's something about a foundation. I've never had anybody come over to our home and say, man, David, you got a great foundation. It's beautiful. What an unbelievable foundation. That's great. You know, I really feel badly about that. You invest hours and hours and hours. You dig these deep beams. Sometimes, 
you know, 16 inches deep, sometimes 24 around the perimeter of the house and cut a couple through the middle and you do all this finagling with the steel, get all that rebarb in there and you have to tie it all up and it really looks quite nice. When you get all done, you have to level out the sand. In fact, when I worked construction building some churches, I spent all summer weeks on end, just dragging a two-by-four over the sand to make sure it was flat and to make sure that the contractor didn't get uh, totally overwhelmed by pouring too much concrete. But you know, when I go to, like, we worked on Northwest Bible Church. When I go up to Northwest Bible Church, I try to call everyone's attention. Look at that foundation. Man, I built that foundation. You walk into their gymnasium, and underneath their beautiful wood floor is a strong concrete foundation. And you know what? Some of the foundation you can actually see because we built some poured walls that came up off the foundation and it's that exposed aggregate. But when I've been in Northwest Bible Church, nobody even calls attention to that. I've never had anybody say, man, look at that exposed aggregate. That's tremendous. I really feel badly. That's the way it is with a congregation, about a, a, a congregation and a foundation. They just don't appreciate the really important things. Freud would have a blast with that, wouldn't he? You know, that's what it's like about a foundation. When it's all done, when the house is complete, nobody notices the foundation. In fact, if I look at it, all of you today, externally, everyone looks pretty much the same. We go through similar kinds of activities. We eat, we sleep, we raise families, we build houses, we go to work, and life goes on. But you know, what Jesus is telling us is that as we go through life, someone's going to lay a foundation that won't crack. When we lived over in Overlook, the foundation of the house, a couple houses up the street from us, cracked. I mean, it just split right down the middle. You could see it. The house just kind of bent, was bent like that. Nobody wanted to buy that house. In fact, down here in our state, when that happens, you can chalk it out unless you can camouflage it somehow. It's hard to sell a house with a cracked foundation. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking to us about. He's saying, I can teach you in the Sermon on the Mount, words that have become so familiar to so many people. Jesus is saying, this is the light. This is the foundation that will hold everything together. He says you need to hear those words and then you need to put it into practice. So let's go back over. Let's remind ourselves as we conclude Jesus' message Let's go back over and remind ourselves about some of the things that our ears have heard. And Jesus began this exposure of the foundation that we could build our life upon with a character insight. He talked about the character of an individual that when everything was said and done would be approved of God. Turn back to chapter 5 because Jesus begins his message by exposing the character of his kingdom children. The incredible thing about our heavenly daddy is that he's chosen to tell us how we can be approved. He's told us what's going to be on the exam. When I was at seminary, Dave Lowry and I spent all kind of time trying to figure out what our teachers would ask us. I remember one course we had from Dr. Bruce Walkie in Old Testament introduction. He asked us on the final exam to summarize all the books of the Old Testament in the order that they were in the Hebrew text, not the English text. And all of us busted out laughing because we were going to have trouble summarizing the books of the Old Testament in the English order. 
In fact, most of us in our freshman year at seminary didn't even realize that the Hebrew order was different than the English order. We all busted out laughing. You could never guess what that crazy professor was going to ask on a test. It was impossible. I had one test in the doctoral studies. We read an essay exam on ancient Near Eastern history. I read through four exam essays. We were supposed to pick three of them. I didn't have the foggiest idea what any one of the questions was about. And all of us, seven of us, only seven by that time, they narrow them down quick. We all laughed again. And we wrote a bunch of bull for the rest of the exam. And we passed somehow. <laughs> and that's when one of those professors needs that great big stamp with the head of a bull on it. You just go page after page, just stamping it out. Kids, that's how you get through. When, you're, when in doubt, guess. But you don't have to guess what your Heavenly Father is going to ask you on the final exam. He already tells you, congratulations, if you're poor in your spirit, if you're spiritually bankrupt, not if you lack enthusiasm or zealousness. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are you if you've come to the place in your life that you realize that you can't be good enough to be approved of God. So you're poor, you're bankrupt in your spirit. You come to the end of your desire to try to please God by obeying external rules and regulations and you have a, a bankruptcy of spirit that opens yourself up to the will of God. Blessed are those who mourn, those that are moved deeply over their failure to obey the Old Testament law. Jesus is building off the prophets, we learned. Remember that? Jesus is building in this sermon off the message of the prophets. And the prophetic message of the Old Testament is about a group of people who failed to reach God, failed to obey God by trying to keep a tablet of stone laws. They were great laws. They were great principles. It was a great lifestyle. It was the greatest religion that's ever been built because it was given by direct revelation of God but just like Moses smashed the ten tablets at the very beginning, when the prophets came on the scene, the children of Israel had already smashed the tablets again in their life. And so the prophets had a different message. They had a message of you've got to cry because you've broken relationship with God. You're not approved by God. But they didn't have a message just of doom and gloom. They went on to talk about a totally new day, an incredible day, the day in which all of man's debts are thrown away, canceled. And it says, blessed are those who mourn over their sin so that they can have their hearts open to the joy of forgiveness. Blessed are the meek. Not blessed are the Casper Miltos, as we learn, but blessed are those approved by God are those who put themselves under the authority of God. Meek is a lot like being poor in your spirit. It's like the publican sinner who beat his chest and said, woe is me, God doesn't even need to hear me. In contrast to the, the unmeek Pharisee who's saying, look at me, God, I've done all of this and I'm thankful I'm not like this guy. That parable Jesus told us is a great insight into the meek spirit of the publican and the pride, prideful hypocrisy of the Pharisee. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And righteousness is used in this verse, we learned, of God's kingdom. It's allowing God's rule to come into our life. And the Messiah has brought God's rule because they're going to be filled. 
Blessed are those who are merciful. Those that have received the mercy from the Father are able to give mercy to other people. Blessed are those who are true blue, pure in heart. Blessed are those who have integrity. In Hebrew, the word that's used for being pure means that you're single. At the core of your being, there's a oneness, no duplicity. Blessed are those who have that singleness, that purity of heart, because they're going to see God. Those kind of people produce peace. They're able to help people calm their anger. Instead of breaking human relationships, instead of tearing families apart, instead of tearing church families apart, they're able to bear with one another and help people to work through their conflicts and work through anger and work through hostility to bring them into a unity of the family of God. Blessed are those who know how to make peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When you live like this, when you have this kind of a character, you're going to be persecuted. And Jesus tells us right up front, he's not the kind of a, of a leader that says, hey, join me, everything will be hunky-dory, you'll, you'll be healthy and wealthy, everything's going to be great. He doesn't tell us that. He says, if you live for me, if you live for an alien kingdom in the kingdom of darkness, it's going to get hot. It's going to be hard. There's going to be persecution at times. Not that you ask for it, but the Lord gets us ready for the battle. It's a good indication of whether or not we're really living for Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted, not because they're a little bit weird, not because they don't fulfill their obligations, but blessed are those who are persecuted because they're kingdom children in enemy territory. Now, I would challenge you, you need to go back over those qualities again and again and again. You don't try to get those qualities. Try to become patient. It's impossible. You get impatient because you're not patient. Try to overcome anger. Man, you get angry because you're still angry. You're frustrated because you're still hostile. You can't get any of these qualities by trying harder. You can rent cars that way, but you can't get into the kingdom of God by trying harder. You've got to allow Jesus to permeate your broken spirit. And over time, as you walk with Him and you allow His life to move through you, you start to become like Him. But you know, He does use the watering and the tilling and the planting of the teaching of His Word. Now most people are going to say, well, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, but most people won't really study and comprehend and internalize the Sermon on the Mount. What all of us need to do is a simple thing. We need to read these character qualities again and again and again. We need to learn what it is to spend time alone with God asking Him to create these qualities in our life. Most people that you meet are not going to live like that. When you start school, from the children, up through the teenagers, through college students, up through the adults, most people that we meet in our society are going to live just the opposite of those characteristics that I just gave. But most of those people, when life is said and done, their foundation is going to be cracked. And that's what we're after. We're after knowing how to get a foundation that when we live out this life, however long it might be, it's going to prove at the end it was right. It was strong. It could take the storms of life. Now, only the Holy Spirit can help you and I to be able to be that kind of a person. 
But I want us to get a great burden. Pray that the fruit of this kind of a character will be evidence in our life. Because God's going to use that. Read it. I would challenge you. It's a simple thing. Make a covenant right now. This week, I'm going to go back and every day I'm going to read those Beatitudes at least one time. Congratulations if you're poor in your spirit. And I'm going to be asking the Lord, Lord, how do these things apply to this situation? When I go to just lose my cork and really get angry in an athletic contest because I'm uptight, will I keep it under control? Blessed are those who are gentle, who are meek. You know, I find myself in athletics, I, even in a friendly game, I can find my inner spirit cross over the line. And the Beatitudes come in, David, blessed are those who are meek, not blessed are those who kill out of anger. Nothing wrong with playing hard, but we know the difference when we cross that line and we start to live for other values. Think about it all this week. How does this character permeate my life? Jesus goes on in verse 13 to talk to us about our mission. And we could call it the salt and light mission. And I would encourage you to, to ask yourself, what kind of salt am I being? Am I a preservative influence? Am I an instrument of light? Every one of us are marked people. People are watching you. People are listening to you. And if you're salt, you're preserving this whole area. You are. There's a tremendous spiritual conflict going on, and we are the preservative influences. As we live the kingdom character, we become preservation. We become a kind of a person that makes people hunger and thirst for God. We make them thirsty like salt. We learned all that. We talked about the salt and light mission of the disciples. Jesus tells us that we shouldn't hide our witness under a bushel. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. And this is very strategic. We need to gather together to learn about what Jesus' will for us is. As we begin school tomorrow, as we go back to our job tomorrow, we need to take the salt and the light. We need to scatter the salt. We need to spread the light. Every one of you is on a mission. You know, just one of you can destroy the testimony of Christ for some individual. Now, that's a negative way to say it. Every one of us can build the testimony of Christ. We can clear up deception. We can clear away error. And we do it in just the little things. There's a lot of working people like I talked about beginning with construction, about building a foundation, I find there's a lot of construction people who have an idea that they could never gather together with us. I've had some of the men say, if I walk in the door, the roof would fall in. Why do they say that? Because it's deeply embedded in their mind that Jesus is for the good people, not for rough, cussing, chewing, drinking, angry sometimes, rough men. They're thoroughly convinced Jesus is for the nice, sedate people. Now, is that true? Is that the way the real Jesus is? And you know where you make the difference? It's just little things. You see, pastors don't associate with people like that. 
And I find a command in the Word of God that says associate with all different kinds of people. And you do it in little ways in our town. You do it when you walk into a cafe and whether you just walk straight through the cafe. You see, the way that this salt and light thing works is very subtle. You see, where I was raised, if you walk into a New York restaurant, you don't go bopping around the restaurant and say hello to everybody in the restaurant. In New York, they'll probably grab you by the ear and throw you out in the street. Say, mind your own business. But our culture is still a lot more relational. It's great. I find it makes a big difference if you go over to a table and talk with some men that say, well, you know, men alive, the preachers, the reverends, they don't ever talk with us. You can blow that misconception. I'm not any different than they are. The only way they're going to find that out is to know us. Aren't you burdened over the terrible misconception that a lot of people out there don't think they can ever hear the message of this book because it's not for them? That's a tragic deception. And yet I hear that a lot, a real lot. A lot of people will only come when there's weddings or funerals. We can be salt, we can be light. How different it is. You see how far we've come? We're following a Savior that walked out there in the fields, that spoke in the hillsides, that spoke, you know, on the city streets. And man, we've walked it all up into religious monasteries. Jesus says, go out, you've got a mission. If you're going to be my disciple, take it into the university. Take it into your school. Take it into life. Take it into your neighborhood. Then he goes on and talks about his relationship to the Old Testament laws. We begin with verse 17. We entered a long section where Jesus contrasted the true teaching of the kingdom versus the hypocrisy of religion. And don't get too far down on the Pharisee because there's a whole lot of Pharisee in us. The very first thing that a Pharisee would say as Jesus was teaching like we're sharing together today, the very first thing that a religious would say is, you've ruined the Old Testament law. You've thrown it out. Mary and I had a conversation like that with somebody just recently. Over breakfast, we were sharing and, and I said to this person, I said, you know, the Christian life is like a marriage. And in your marriage, when the night that you get married like we've shared with you in the past, one of the worst things you could ever do is to give a list of 20 things that your wife should not do now that you're married. You know, things like don't kiss other guys, don't hold hands romantically with other guys, don't go out on dates with other guys. I want you positively to make meals, to make beds, to clean the house. And here's 20 rules. If you do these things, honey, I will love you forever. Any wife that's worth her salt will rip that document up and throw it in his face. And as the documents get ripped up and the husband looks and says, Honey, what's wrong with Aren't you going to do all those things? I never even thought about it. Sure, we'll do a lot of those things together. But man alive, if you need to have a sheet of paper that I sign marriages that have all this legal paraphernalia before they enter into it, they don't have a chance. Because that's not what love is. This individual said, Dave, that's a great analogy. But man alive, if we turn it over to the inner work of the Spirit, if we rely upon the character, man, these young people, they'll come unglued. They'll ruin everything. Man, they'll go out there and they'll, it'll be just devastating. Our whole society will come crashing down. We need to have some strong rules and regulations. The legalist always cries like that, scared to death of talking with people's hearts. And yet all of us know that that's where the battle is really won. 
Jesus said, I'm not going to destroy the Old Testament. He says, in essence, I'm the completion of it. That message that I shared earlier in the message today, that message of darkness and judgment and lostness under the Sinai covenant of law. Jesus fulfills the message of the prophet that says there's a new day. There's a new mountain, Mount Calvary. There's a new relationship called a marriage. There's a new time where I will write my law in your heart. Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, I fulfill all of that. And he goes on to tell the Pharisees that all of your religious externalism, remember some of the things we talked about? The Pharisee thought he was doing great if he didn't murder somebody. And Jesus said, hey, wait a minute. Maybe you haven't murdered somebody. Have you ever been angry? And Jesus traces it, that hostility. Remember when I gave you the message about killing the cat? You all remember that one. Had a lot of, lot of you sharing with me about that. You've all been ministering to me along those lines of killing the cat. It's in all of us. When I go down on Huntsville and talk to guys that murder, I find myself going, oh man, they're so different than us. Then you talk to them. They're not any different than us. It just flashed a little bit stronger, flashed a little bit harder. Jesus is saying to the legalist, hey, it's not just keeping an external rule. What about your heart? Remember he talked to us about adultery? The Pharisees were great on that one. The rabbis had all kind of discussion about not committing adultery. In fact, their basic rule was what the Islamic people have followed. We learned about how they locked the women up. The Pharisees, if they had their way, would keep all the women under lock and key. You know why? Because they blamed all their immorality on the girls. It's easy to do that. Jesus said, hey, it's not the girls. You're not going to solve it by having monasteries and locking people away from one another. That only intensifies it. It's what's going on in here. It's how you think about sexuality. It's how you think about people. It's how you think about a woman or how you think about a man. And when you lust, you treat them like a thing to be abused. Everyone does that. It's in our hearts. And Jesus wants to come in and change that. So he goes, he talks about almsgiving. He goes right down through a whole list of things. Oaths, swearing falsely. The Pharisees turned the whole system of giving oaths into a finagling way to get around. Remember we talked about crossing your fingers. I got my fingers behind my back. So I don't have to keep my word because I've got my fingers crossed. Those little games we play. We play those games with adults. Our whole society is playing those games. I didn't sign the dotted line. We only agreed so much. What about the spirit of what we agreed to? What's the intent of what you said? As we move through chapter, chapter 5, Jesus goes right through murder, adultery, divorce, swearing oaths, talks about loving your enemies instead of giving an eye for an eye. He concludes chapter 5 with those verses about love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And he says, instead, we need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Have you been doing that? It's a liberating thing. It's a liberating thing to pray for those that, that have your goat, your enemies. It's an incredible thing to pray for your enemies on a national level. How many of us have prayed for the Islamic Iran this week? See, that hits me. You know, when I see those tyrannical crowds, Mary and I have been in Jordan. I have a problem with Islam. I really do. It's, it's weird. 
In fact, I'll stay in Israel. I could go and live in Israel for a year and I would be very comfortable. I, I feel very much at ease in Israel. And it's not just because I can get a hamburgers and Cokes. But in the Islamic country, there's just something eerie. At 5 o'clock in the morning, you have this, you know, this guy starts yelling, calling out, this wailing. Everybody's called to prayer. Oh, it drives you nuts. Five times a day. Strange. Our whole Western culture is wrestling with that, that hostility. They're our enemies. They don't like Americans. We are the great devil. How do you deal with that? Oh, let's get them. Send them in the Marines. Sometimes at a national level, that's what's needed. But on a believer's level, even the Christian Marine, which is where it gets tough, needs to be praying. Lord, there's individuals, there's boys there that need to know the Savior. Imagine a culture that knows very little, very few people that know about Jesus. You know that there's a pastor in Cairo, an evangelical pastor that's ministering to hundreds of Islamic Egyptians and bringing them to the Savior. Let's pray for him in Egypt. It's one of the most ancient churches in all the world. Pray for the Coptic church. Pray for light to come. It changes your heart. Doesn't that, even when I talk like that, it just changes your heart. You know what? You know how that relates? You say, well, what could we ever have to do with a problem like that? Do you realize when we had Jews for Jesus here, God has an incredible sense of humor. The night we had Jews for Jesus here, we had an Iranian girl that was here at church that night. And she's one of the few women that Khomeini, she had a personal audience with Khomeini, and I don't know why, except for the sovereignty of God, he let her out. She went before Khomeini and said, I want to get out. I don't buy these values. I want to go to the West. And instead of cutting her hand off or her ear off or her neck off, her head off, hard to cut your neck off. <laughs> he let her go. And she was here and heard the gospel. She was staying in the home of a Christian couple. You see, the, the incredible thing about the family of God is you learn to love your enemies. Pray for them. That's the greatest way to deal with the bitterness that comes in. As we come into chapter 6, be careful, verse 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have your reward in heaven. That verse, chapter 6, verse 1, becomes the summary verse of Jesus' development right up through the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is counteracting doing our religious acts like giving, like praying, like fasting, doing those things for the effect that they have upon others instead of doing them because of a personal relationship with the Father. You see, Jesus is telling us that worship is not what we do in the effect that we have upon someone else. As I talk to you, the issue is not, did you like what I said? Am I winning the crowd? Any pastor that ministers to get the crowd to follow them is a false prophet by definition. Because the issue is, was I faithful to my Father? Did I tell what Jesus was actually teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to the best of my ability? Did I rely upon the Holy Spirit to try to get these values into my life and into your life? And that generates integrity. Jesus is talking about when we give, there's a need. That's a very important thing. 
We are all the body of Christ. Now I know, like, we're really wrestling with this because a lot of you have been raised with guilt motivation. You gotta give. Every Sunday, you gotta give, you gotta give. And it's very important not to be motivated to give out of guilt. Oh no, they need it again. We don't want the roof to fall in. But you know, Jesus talks about the discipline of on a weekly basis celebrating a love for the Savior. You see, I find that when I'm filling out my checks, when I'm paying all my bills, there's worry in that. There's trouble in that. And for me to start out right at the top and say, Lord Jesus, it's all yours. Heavenly Daddy, this is your stuff. Now what do we need to give to? And that discipline of writing that check out for the kingdom of God in some tangible ways for poor people, for church families, for ministries that are heralding the gospel. It's a tremendous confession of faith. And I'll be honest with you. I'm tempted just like you are to say, ah, I can't make it. Let's wait till the end of the bills, Father. When I get it all paid, then we'll check it out. We'll see how much we have left over. Now, the Lord isn't asking you to give all of your money to Him. He's asking you to say that all of it belongs to Him already and then to use it wisely according to His design. But it's an act of faith to give. And when you do it secretly from your heart, it's a great spiritual blessing because you're confessing faith. From our little children, teenagers, adults, we all need to have that great privilege of celebrating our love for the Savior by telling Him, Lord, I am trusting You for my daily needs. I'm not bound up in materialism. I will freely give. I will lay gifts on the altar because I love You. We need to learn to do that. And great blessings are going to come to God's people when we do. But we never do it for effect. If this church ever builds a building, we name it the blankety-blank building after Dr. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, forget that. That's not a biblical thing to do. I don't believe. I really don't believe it is. How, you know, how, can we how can you motivate people for the acclaim that they will get to their name so that when they die, people will many years later come back and say, hey, you know, Sam Houston was here. The politicians will always do that. Jesus says God's people aren't like that. They have a name in heaven. They don't have to worry about a name here. So we give freely, not by the prestige that we might get, but because of love. Jesus talked to us about prayer. And the rest of his sermon pretty much centered on the idea of prayer. Remember, we spent many weeks trying to go back to our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and for, you know, on and on like that. I'm not quite having my potter nostrils down too well. But I was raised with kids. When we played ball, I played with a lot of kids back in New Jersey that would pray like that, especially when things got tough. Sometimes even in the dugout, you hear a guy, Our Father in heaven, heaven, Our Father in heaven, Our Father in heaven. Especially with the bottom of the ninth and he was going to be the last out. <laughs> Why? We're going to get the deity to perform for us. Maybe he'll come through for us. And Jesus taught us a whole different way of praying. Praying to a heavenly daddy. Telling him we want his will to come. We want his kingdom on this earth to come. Have you been praying like that? I hope you have. It's exciting to do that. Start out your day talking about God and His kingdom. It'll just change. Like if things are really chaotic at work, say, Heavenly Father, it doesn't look like your heart will is being done in this job at all. 
man alive, it seems like there's a lot of secular ideas here, a lot of opposition. It's kind of a mess. Father, bring your kingdom into this situation. Help me to be light. Help me to be salt. Talking to the Lord like that. Looking at your work from His perspective. And then we can talk to Him about our daily needs. Jesus talked to us about a whole lifestyle. Instead of worrying about bills, we trust the Father. Remember we talked about, give us this day our daily bread. It's a tremendous thing. Some of the most exciting time in your life will come when you really get thankful about the daily things that you have. When I was in Poland, they really thanked the Lord for the food over there in Poland. Man, when we sat down to Polish sausage, you talk about Thanksgiving. Boy, they prayed. Because it was really special. A lot of times they didn't have food. And they would thank the Lord. As Americans, we have so much and it causes us not to be thankful. Jesus is saying, hey, American believer, I'm still the great provider. Thank me. Trust me. Believe in me. We talked about that great, great privilege of not worrying, but believing in God, a heavenly daddy to meet our needs. Jesus concluded that exposition about prayer by talking about ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and it shall be opened. If you want to have a Cadillac, you can ask the Lord for it and it will be at your door the next day. You see, you've got to look at this whole message. Maybe if you want a Cadillac in heaven, the Lord will give you one. I don't know what it does to golden streets. We'll have to find out. But you see, those verses at the end of chapter 7 are in the flow. Ask, what do you ask? You ask what Jesus has been talking to us about through the whole sermon. Seek, what do you seek? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The incredible thing to me about many believers is they read the Bible for year after year after year, and if I gave them an exam on any other thing they read, they would put things together. Even skillful Bible commentators, many times I think that they they see one word at a time. It's like they go like this, and they go, this word means this, and this word means this, and this word means this. Man, if I listened to conversations like we study the Bible, it would be incredible the misunderstandings. You'll know more than the average Bible scholar sometimes if you'll just start conscientiously reading the Bible together. The Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying, the reason I chose it is it's the kernel, it's the essence of the teaching ministry of Jesus when he was here on this planet. It's a summary of of what Matthew, who walked with Jesus, believed about what Jesus taught. It's the essence of the teaching of Jesus in his earthly life. Read it from the beginning. Read it to the end. You'll understand it. Read it over and over again and ask the Spirit to help you. And you'll understand it. The more life experience you have, the more you let the Holy Spirit get those truths into your life, the more you live them out, the more you'll understand it. Jesus said, ask. You can understand it. Seek, you'll find. Knock. You can have it all opened up to you. Every one of you can understand the Sermon on the Mount, and you can live it by the power of God. Jesus then went on and talked about false teachers. Paul's had a naturalist that spoke over the high school. I mean, it was like taking a step back a hundred years in time, an old mountain man, in, in essence almost, would go out on a ranch and just live out there for a year and trap. But he talked about wolves, and he had pictures of wolves coming in and attacking the neck of a lamb, and he shared that he used to think that they'd, they'd slice the jugular vein by slashing the jugular vein of the lamb, but he found that they just crushed the windpipe. 
And he showed two wolves coming in on a lamb and pulling it down and snuffing out its life there. And I couldn't help but think, Jesus said, watch out, there's grievous wolves that are trying to supplant the teaching of Christ. And then Jesus closes where we began today. The wise man, they build their house on a rock. The foolish man, did you notice? They hear the word. You see, we often get into these questions about, well, what about those who haven't heard? The big question is not, what about those who haven't heard? God will be very fair and very just. You can count on it, because that's the kind of a God he is. Leave that to God. You know the question I want to ask? What about those who have heard? See, we're always worried about, what about those who haven't heard? It's a cop-out. What about those who have heard? It's what those who have heard, what they do with it, that reveals what we're like as human beings. Now, we've heard it. We've spent many weeks summarizing. I did it again today. I just reviewed through the Sermon on the Mount. What am I going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? It can heal your homes. It can heal my home. It can produce a mighty revival throughout this whole area. Yes, it can. You know, it can change your school. You know, there's kids at school that you're going to go to school with tomorrow in the high school. There's kids that don't have any meaning to life. Everything looks great on the outside, but there's no meaning. There's no reason. It doesn't add up. A lot of those kids, their moms and dads are gone or they're arguing. A lot of moms and dads are drinking themselves sick so the kids follow the same thing. There's another whole world that's out there. Mom and dad, listen to your kids. Listen to what's happening in another kingdom. Sometimes that other kingdom is right here. You see, sometimes that other kingdom is right here because we're playing a game. We're one thing Sunday morning, we're something else during the week. And what we've talked about this week and what we've talked about in the past week, it's not a message of guilt and judgment. It's a message of integrity. It's a message of hope. And from the depths of my being, Build your life on the sermon of the Savior. Be a wise person. Jesus tells us it's a narrow gate. There's going to be a lot more people that go through the wide meadows and pathways. But there's going to be some wise people who follow the path of wisdom by living for the kingdom of God.